Welcome to the 151st episode of Reverse Sweat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 36 years to the day that Mike Gatting had his thumb broken by Barbados bowler Vibert Green. The unfortunate Gatting had only just recovered from a broken nose inflicted by Malcolm Marshall. Welcome to the podcast that wouldn't have blamed him for heading to the beach. Such was the nature of batting against the West Indies in the 1970s, that would have been, in the 1980s. Um, the, and Mike Gatting... His legacy characterized by pictures of him with a bashed up face. You know, unfortunate pictures of Mike Gatting as sort of how, how we now remember him in many ways, or indeed getting bowled by Shane Warne and more on that um, more on that later. In this episode of Reverse Watch Radio, we're going to be talking about the most expensive over ever in first class cricket. We're going to be reviewing Archie Jackson Cricket's Tragic Genius, the um, book published just a couple of years ago uh, from David Thrift. Um, but as I say, the huge news in the cricket world, obviously over the last few weeks, has been the, um, the death of Shane Warne. And it still feels odd to say that, the death of... Um, the death of Shane Warne, doesn't it, Andy? I think someone was making the point in an article the other day how bizarre it feels to write the late Shane Warne, and I, I think it'll take a lot of time for um, everyone to adjust to that. I was reading the tributes and found them all sort of falling short, uh, which isn't a criticism of those writing them, but I think just a recognition that when someone dies uh, and it comes as such a shock, uh, words do tend to fall short. Um, so I found myself instead turning to Rob Moody, aka Rob Belinda, who uh, this podcast and many others looks up to mm. as the cricket's legendary video archivist. Uh, and he had responded to Warren's, uh, Warren's death in the way you would expect, with a thread of his greatest moments. And I sat back and watched, and there Warren was running the show. And I was reminded that while the ball of the century to Gatting, Gatting making another <laughs> appearance in this episode, um, is the one that is played a thousand times, it's the ingenious setups rather than the raw spin that better represent his genius. And sitting back and watching the clips and seeing countless others on social media sharing the clips, praising them, was comforting in a way because it made you realize this is a man whose legacy is uh, very much secure and very much loved i think you're absolutely right about you know this question of how do you capture someone like warren particularly when the news is so um is so fresh um interestingly on the cricket etc etc podcast i don't know if you've come across it's the podcast that gideon haig and peter laylor um uh, put together you know regularly i think they record every every couple of days and i was listening to their the episode that they rapidly did kind of in the middle of the night after the news broke of Warren's of Warren's death and Peter Laylor was talking about being in Pakistan with obviously a whole number of you know sort of Australian cricket journalists and Australian cricket officials and when the news came through just kind of no one had anything to say in the same way you know well in in, in the opposite way from when you know Rodney Marsh who died very shortly before came through you know People were quick to be able to frame what his legacy was in, you know, um, in in neater terms. With Warren, there is something kind of undefinable, and that was, you know, he, he is in death as he was in life, and that was what was such a great, you know, the amazing thing about his bowling is it was undefinable. He he kept on mm. complete, you know, completely redefining the boundaries within which he worked and the boundaries within which cricket, yeah. you know, works as well. I, I think it was a combination of the shock and also the fact that many people just felt you didn't want to say something that didn't didn't measure up. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think there was also there was sadness on so many levels. I mean, obviously, you, your, your, your first thoughts go to, to, to close family and friends. But 
there was also a sense that he still had a lot to give to cricket. Um, You know, I think there was a feeling that he was someone who had already shown an aptitude for life beyond uh, as a player, beyond just being a player. And I Um, I I think he's also one of those people who everyone feels like they can relate to in um, their own personal way even all of those people who clearly have never met him everyone's got a Shane Warne story and it was one of the interesting things on on Twitter after his death is that there are so many people talking not only about the time that oh I met Shane Warne and this happened or you know a friend met Shane Warne and this happened but so many of our kind of memories both cricketing and kind of therefore cultural particularly in Australia are defined around and by Shane Warne and so suddenly that absence you know has has a really kind of personal feel to it too I think. Now on to happier news. This is the first episode of Reverse Threat Radio recorded with Toby Chad, the father. Toby Chad on, and... on three hours sleep, yeah, something like that. Um, so yes, we, we very happily actually, on, on the day before Warren died actually, we, we welcomed our, our first child um, into, the, um, into the world and in the, you know, the days after um after that in our kind of you know haze of early parenthood trying to decide on a on a name for him which was an interesting process because I've always been quite keen on the idea of naming our children after um after cricketers I've actually always wondered whether we should we should call one of our children hey-ho I've quite quite liked the name hey-ho Chad <laughs> after of course Rachel hey-ho Flint the great pioneering um cricketer of the of the women's game I've all, I also always rather liked Herbert as a name both the name but also kind of I like Herbert Sutcliffe I like I like him as a cricketer I like what he kind of stood for that kind of stalwart stalwart of England's golden age um my wife for reasons which I will I will always fail to comprehend is less keen on the idea of strictly naming all of our children after um after cricketers um Although we did, on you know, given the proximity to Shane Warne's death, we did briefly toy with the idea of maybe he should have Shane as a Shane as a middle name. Um, however, where where we landed, I'm pretty happy with actually. So he's he's called Lawrence Ambrose Marshall Chad. Um, my wife thinks that Lawrence and Ambrose are great names, and they've just given you know we've given him those names on the strength of what of what they are, um, and I love them too. But what I haven't yet told her is that put together with Marshall, his name is 100% a tribute to the kind of West Indian um, greats of West Indian uh, cricket obviously Lawrence Rowe the great batsman Curtly Ambrose and and Malcolm Marshall who you mentioned earlier um, to you know of two different generations wonderful wonderful pace um, pace bowlers there's also another cricketing connection behind behind Ambrose so um, for this episode we've been reading a, a biography of Archie Jackson who was buried in the fields of Mars Cemetery a couple of miles away from where I'm recording now and when I read that we went to the cemetery to go and see if we could find his grave but we also took it as an opportunity to look for some names and we found um, a corner of the cemetery with some fantastic old um, kind of missionary monks names in it one of which was Ambrose and we were kind of reminded of reminded of Ambrose so it's thanks to Archie Jackson that, that Ambrose is in his name as well so so one way or other very happily for us um our, well very happily for me certainly my wife doesn't know this yet but our, our, our child's name is entirely steeped in in cricketing law 
so there's a whole genre of I think what is mostly considered uh, pretty dubious science of nominative determinism <laughs> that obviously you know um, you know a child named uh, Baker goes off to become, make yep. wonderful bread um, are you hoping for a bit of nominative determinism here a I, sort of Ambrose-esque pace bowler? I, well I absolutely am and I think um, the, the only name in the, the only name of the of the four that is not cricket related is, is actually mine name my surname chad so <laughs> so in, in in 40 years time they'll look back and they'll say of course he was named after three great west indian um players and then he defined the name chad as the greatest english opener that the 21st century has seen <laughs> From the archives. Now, in the last episode, I told the story of the longest run of maidens in Test cricket, Bapu's astonishing 131 dot balls in January 1964. This week, Toby has taken us to the other extreme the most expensive over ever bowled. Okay, so the answer about the most expensive ever bowl, over ever bowled in Test cricket is, is kind of a bit boring. It's Brian Lara hitting 466444 um, against South Africa's Robin Peterson back in 2003 and it was just an over where a spinner went for, you know, went for a lot of uh, a, a lot of runs. It doesn't have a, a huge amount of significance um, beyond that and of course Brian Lara is going to be the kind of cricketer who's going to um, who's going to do it. So instead, I decided to look into the highest number of runs scored off and over in all of first-class cricket, um, which is a much, much more interesting story and takes us back to New Zealand in 1990. So it's the end of the, uh, getting towards the end of the domestic season and Wellington are looking to secure the Shell Trophy uh, with a win over Canterbury at Christchurch. It's a four-day game when the teams reach the final day. Um, Wellington captain Irvin, the wonderfully named Irvin McSweeney. I, I was going to say, if you'd, if you'd heard about Irvin McSweeney earlier, maybe it would have been Little Irvin, Chad. Yeah, maybe nice. it would have been, or McSweeney, Chad. Um, the, um, it's not too late. We haven't sent the paperwork in. Um, anyway, <laughs> our friend Irvin um, declares to, to leave Canterbury needing 291 to win off 59 overs. So, you know, to put it the other way, he requires 59 overs to bowl Canterbury out and therefore secure the Shell Trophy, the main four-day trophy in New Zealand domestic cricket it's all looking like a formality when canterbury stumbled to 108 for eight and at the crease we have wicketkeeper batsman lee german who's the last of the of the recognized batsmen together with the number 10 who's a bit of a bit of a bunny roger roger ford um understandably the pair realize that they're not going to you know make the the 180 or so runs needed for for victory and they decide to try and block their way towards the the draw they just want to bat it out at this point you might think two batsmen there blocking it out that we might actually be talking about the greatest number of dot balls in in test cricket but in fact uh, or in first class cricket but in fact the very opposite um happens they actually make quite a fist of it though don't they because to get from 108 to 8 for 8 to 196 for 8 not a bad effort at no, all it's for not. a wicketkeeper batsman and number 10. No, I mean, not, that, exactly. that is a pretty determined rearguard action. They're just kind of turning turning the strike over, finding ones or twos where they, you know, where they can. Um, and because it's quite an attra- attacking field as well, I imagine that there are, you know, there are, there are balls that are going, edges that are going to the boundary and, you know, they're, they're finding runs relatively easily when they, when they can. So they do, as you say, reach 196 for eight. There are two overs left. 
there are 95 runs left to win look at that equation it's never going to happen this thing's ending in a draw or it's ending in those two wickets being um being taken by by wellington um remember though that if the game ends in a in a draw wellington's chances of winning the trophy are significantly diminished they really want to win and make sure that they can win the win the trophy and so urban mcsweeney comes up with a plan to try and force a result it's a it's a variation on the kind of declaration bowling strategy he needs to tempt the batsman into taking some risks and so what he does is he throws the ball to bert vance Vance is absolutely not a bowler. He made his career as a as a domestic. I think he might have played a couple of tests, but fundamentally he was a kind of journeyman domestic batsman. He occasionally kept a bit. He occasionally captained a bit, but he certainly didn't bowl. Across a long career, he bowled only 36 overs in first-class um, cricket. So what's McSweeney doing here? He hopes that by giving Canterbury some free runs off Vance, having one over, one high-scoring over, that Canterbury would get close to the winning total and they'd therefore try and reach it and therefore take some risks and so they might actually be able to, so that Wellington might actually be able to get these Canterbury batsmen out. It's the only way that he sees they can get these batsmen. It, it's wonderful captaincy. I mean, I'm, I'm all, I always love these these ruses, these slightly clever, offbeat approaches to a problem. I wonder if you wouldn't have been better off because this situation still relies on the batsman, as you say, playing their part. You could actually take the batsman completely out of the equation if you had a bowler and a wicketkeeper who were willing to just like let it go for kind of four buys, four buys. Why? Do you know what I mean? Bowl very, very wide of leg stump, just let it go. You could, you could almost take take the batsman completely. That's out an of interesting the equation, question because but... you never really see that happening in declaration bowling, do you? Mm. It's always things that can be hit by the batsman rather than. Is there? I mean, I I wonder whether there's actually a are you allowed to bowl deliberate wide? Is there a it's rule about that? I don't know. It, it, we need someone out there some... who knows the who knows the MCC rulebook back to front. I, I don't know if there is, but I agree. There's something that feels slightly more dodgy about yeah. it. Yeah. About um, intentionally but, firing yeah. it three yards down, you know, yeah, down, yeah. down the leg side. But either way, good old Bert Vance, and this is kind of the that his moment ironically in his career is 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 his most remarkable moment is this over that he that he bowls and he plays his part um Im- impeccably um he bowls noble after noble of slow off spin and i think that's noble on on height rather than on on, on mm. front on front foot so maybe there you've got your answer maybe you can bowl you know kind of deliberate noble after deliberate noble um look the impact on the scoreboard of that over couldn't have been couldn't have been starker um so german went from 75 not out um to bringing up his 100 on the sixth ball of the over of the first 17 balls of the over, and that's a statement in and of itself, of the first 17 balls of the over, only one was a legitimate um, delivery. German scored 70, 7-0 off the over, including eight sixes and five fours. Ford at the other end, the our dogged number 10, had less of a time of it. He just scored five. Overall, the over went for 77. Um Wisdom reports that there was complete dis- disarray in the ground. Um, the scorers apparently had to kind of lean out of their box and ask the spectators to help them to keep track of the score um, because they were just, you know, obviously num- numbers flying everywhere and they were struggling to, to top this up. More significantly, the umpires actually got confused with all of these no balls happening. Um, they lost count of the number of legitimate balls that were happening and it ended up actually only being a five ball over. So 77 runs with actually off, off a five ball over rather than a six ball over. My other thought on this, 
is, as you say, confusion in the crowd, confusion amongst the umpires. Would you have had a chat, I wonder, between captain and batsman? So does this work because you've actually given the batsman a bit of a warning saying, look, guys, we want to make a game of this? Or, or do you actually just t- toss the ball up and say, you know, I, I'm just, I, it's an in- another interesting one, isn't it? it? Is. The dynamics it's between a, the It's two a really teams. interesting question. I don't actually know because in none of the accounts is that actually said explicitly that conversation was, you know, was had. And I imagine that for the batsman to, you know, from a mindset point of view, if you're there just kind of doggedly defending, you're not going to start trying hidden fours and sixes with two overs to go. Mm. You've said, well, we've secured this draw. If something's a no ball and it's going down the leg side, I'm not going to go after it. I'm just going to leave it. You know, we yeah, we, we yeah. want to draw this. So I imagine that at some point there must have been a conversation. And I imagine that at, that at some point, you know, Canterbury would have said that they, you know, um, would have, you know, said, okay, we're up for it and would have would have gone for it. And that it did require that in order for this kind of plan to, um, you know, in order for this plan to, to come off. Um, cool. How it how it ends, though, is is kind of pretty, pretty amusing. So nobody knows what the score is after this after this over, because there have been <laughs> so many, so many runs. But do the maths and Canterbury are only 18 runs from from victory. And they kind of sensing you know they sense that they can do something absolutely miraculous here and off the final over they hit the first five balls for 17 and they then drop and they then block the sixth ball so the game does actually end up ending in a tie or rather sorry in a draw the batsmen only realize this though when they head into the pavilion and they're um, you know, and their teammates say, "Well, actually, we only needed two more of the last of the last ball to actually win it, or one to, or one to tie." Um, it gets better though. Wellington were penalised four points for their slow over rate because of how long that penultimate over took, because it completely knocked their over rate. Because obviously, a seventy-seven run over takes ages to takes ages to bowl. Um, took about twenty minutes for that over to be bowled. So. Despite that, despite being docked those four points and despite drawing the game, they actually ended up still winning the title because of all of the permutations in the other games happening that weekend in the league meant that they actually ended up winning the title. So after all, the whole thing was a complete waste of time. They could have just played out the draw in the first instance and they would still have won the title. So it's this kind of wonderful um, kind of fool's errand that they went on that created a marvellous piece of history, but in the end was entirely unnecessary. The review, and for this episode, we've been reading Archie Jackson, Cricket's Tragic Genius by David Thrift. Um, it was first published in 1987, but this is an updated version uh, published in March 2020 in a very handsome hardback uh, version by Slattery Media Group. David Frith, um, who is a cricket historian, writer and, and editor who edited um, Wisden Cricket Monthly for, for nearly 17 years. He's lived in both Australia and England. And this is his tribute to the Australian batsman Archie Jackson, who was a Contemporary of Donald Badman, um, fated as the heir to Victor Trumper, but died of tuberculosis at the age of just 23. He went back down in the record books um, when, at the age of 19, he became the youngest Test Centurion, a record that he'd hold for almost 40 years. Um, Andy, what did you learn about Archie Jackson as a cricketer from this book? 
there, the focus is on his style, isn't it? And there is a moment where Frith talks about him as a sort of end of an era, as the mm. idea that cricket as an aesthetic pursuit versus cricket as a sort of more mechanical pursuit. And he sees Jackson as kind of at the end of that era. There is reference to the late cut as being his kind of classy trademark shot. Um, which I I found kind of interesting because often when we think of stylish cricketers we go straight for the drive, don't we? We mm. we always think of a cricketer sort of off run. So I, I, I quite I quite like that idea. Um but what, what uh, I mean, what what did you get out of it for for him particularly as particularly as a batsman? Well, there were you know the the comparison with Bradman is something that kind of runs through the book, also runs through Jackson's you know legacy. People say that he was the batsman who was more promise, more promising than um, than Bradman, and that Bradman was the exactly as you say, Bradman was the the first of these kind of ruthless accumulator of runs, whereas um, Jackson was the you know he was the heir to Trumba. He was the great, the great stylist. That's a wonderful quotation from Geoffrey Tebbutt, uh, who was a member of the Australian Press Association, who said the English who worship style in horses, dogs, evening clothes, and batting got ready to acclaim young <laughs> Jackson. You know that he's this this figure of elegance on the, um, you know, on on, on the pitch. Um, we do have this kind of picture of him being a a brave, carefree batsman who kind of plays cricket for all the right reasons of being able to stand up to fast bowling for instance and then when it comes to the mm. the bodyline series which he's not able to play in because of his health there are these interesting moments when he's kind of congratulating Larwood and saying you know well bowled and and, and the yeah. Australian batsman really should have been able to better play your you know better play your bowling and particularly your your short pitched um bowling and there is this I mean it's so difficult and I think this is a kind of central question around the book it's so difficult to know what is um, what is the myth and what is the reality? You know, mm. to what extent do we like to think that here is this young batsman who was who could have taken on Bodyline and and defeated it in the way that Badman couldn't, but but was too ill and was the flower of Australia kind of snuffed mm. out at a young age? Um, and yeah, w- w- where's the myth and the reality there? That there was clearly some evidence of his toughness on that tour to England, where clearly the English press were impressed with how he stood up against fast bowling. Um, but but that there is something about not playing in the Bodyline series and then writing columns about how your colleagues need to be a bit more courageous. That um, I, I wonder how went. Well, he, he was clearly very well loved, but I wonder how that went down in the dressing room. Um, we we get into sort of Jackson the man, and I think. Frith is well aware of exactly the point you make about the, the the how we differentiate between him as a cricketer and as a legend. And Frith has this line: "In such premature death, there is a danger that the legend becomes overgilded." That is not the case here, and Frith is desperate to fight off that accusation. I'm not sure he quite succeeds, and I think that's that's okay because I don't think you set out to write this book unless you've already been at least partly won over by the legend. So Frith, um, when he first, we said that the book was first published in whenever it was 1987, and at that stage he was able to talk to a number of people who you know who knew Jackson. So Jackson died in the 19, early 1930s. Um, Jackson's, uh, I can't remember if they were actually married, but his his fiance at least. Um, uh, it was still alive at that point and a number of people who knew the family and, and knew, you know, Jackson as both a cricketer and a man were around. And so Frith was able to get some insights into him at that point. But one thing that we don't know at all is is some of the kind of inner inner mind, as it were, of Archie Jackson, particularly 
as his health starts deteriorating. And there is quite a lot of sort of surmisal that, that Frith makes. So a lot of the letters that we have that survive from Archie Jackson are very upbeat. And he writes to friends talking about how, you know, he hopes to be over this, this, this you know, kind of lingering, niggling illness soon and be back out on the, on the cricket pitch. And Frith at one point surmises that, you know, he must have been, you know, in the privacy of his room. He must have been kind of, you know, having a having a bit of a bit of a weep every every now and again. Um, but I think it is, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that we just don't know that. We know Jackson very much from the outside, and therefore a lot of the, you know, elements that we use to kind of gild his legend, as as Frith puts it, are stories of people looking at him and remembering him and wanting to kind of create a legacy for him because he is this family loving god-fearing man who was nice to his friends and you know nice to strangers and all of these you know mm. and all of these other things and you, yeah again you wonder how much of that is 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 sort of on the surface and how much of that isn't yeah i mean it's a very comprehensive piece of research which is what you would expect from a historian of David Frith's calibre but I think obviously there's a limit to what's available in terms of sources and I think I was reflecting on the fact that at 23 he was Jackson was only so developed as a person you know you have this phenomenon that I think we is well known in sport and actually in music and art and other fields where if someone gains huge celebrity by that age their public persona is created before they really had the chance to create their own exactly persona. and you then know, their one outgrows the other yeah and particularly after their death I mean I was reflecting on you know the death of the death of Shane Warne where certainly here in Australia his his death will I think create him into something that the Australian public want him to be. Warren is the mm. personification of the kind of maverick larrikin who didn't play by the rules and yet still managed to you know beat beat the world out of that. When that's those are very proudly Australian values. Ditto Archie, Archie Jackson was someone you know was a sort of family boy who um, you know was enormous enormous skill, carefree, a, a natural cricketer. Um, and after his death, these were the things. That the Australian public wanted to, you know, wanted him to be, and kind of created this mm. sort of created this this legacy out of. I I think those final chapters are extremely moving and are unlike anything I've read before. Uh, in that it's a very close to unique situation to have a cricketer of um, immense ability at the start, at really the start of his career. Um, facing death and and yet also playing on which Mm. leads to this strange thing that you feel the public at the time in Australia and maybe even perhaps to an extent Jackson himself were perhaps led to underrate the seriousness of the illness because well how serious can it be he's out on the cricket field yeah exactly and I think the um, uh, you know the question about how to sort of handle in inverted commas someone who's in that situation is a really is a really interesting one we have scenarios where you know teams wonder because when he's running between the wickets he gets tired very quickly and so it becomes quite easy to run him out and apparently teams kind of had this dilemma of knowing he was in a really bad way kind of thinking is it a bit mean to it's like running someone out if they've you know turned their ankle or something you know it feels a bit unsportsmanlike do we do we do we run him out and therefore actually potentially give him a break from clearly struggling is struggling in the middle or do we let him bat on because he he's so much in in love with batting so the selectors had this dilemma and ended up actually having to make decisions about you know can he survive yes he could probably play in innings but can he survive a four-day match and therefore should he be should he be playing a, a, a four-day match there's a the kind of wonderful period where he moves up to brisbane thinking that that's going to help his help his health and ends up playing um grade cricket in brisbane for 
for, for a summer and just kind of piling on. I think the last summer he really mm. plays sort of seriously um, just before his death at the age of, I think, 22 um, and just absolutely piling on the runs in this kind of last golden summer of the of the batsman, you know, kind of plied amongst some fairly sort of everyday teams up in um, up in Queensland. But yeah, you're right. I think that last section of the book is, is moving in terms of, you know, he's desperately grasping onto the the remainder of the cricket that he that he can find and I think there is just a question of if you are terminally ill and cricket is your great joy then even with a a negative effect on your health uh, getting out there and playing is clearly it's something you desperately want to get every every moment out of so I, I think it is a book with the limitations that you would expect of a book about uh, a player who died so young and where the historian and author has had to work with limited sources at a bit of a, a gap of time. But putting that to one side, I think this is the definitive account of an extraordinary life and someone who, um, as you say, at a time when uh, Australia and the world of cricket mourns uh, the death of one legendary figure, this is a, a, an important tribute to another. And one last um, worn comparison I would make is that is actually around the length of the the book and and comparing it to Gideon Haig's book on Warn, which is a similar mm. similar length. And I remember Gideon Haig when he wrote that book um, said uh, that he you know he wanted to write it in the same way it's as you know he felt when he was watching warm play he wanted it to be carefree and quick and you know kind of um sort of you know where where itself likely um and i think that this book kind of whilst it does sometimes get get quite deep into the detail i think it does that too you know it's, it's kind of appropriate that it's 150 pages that it's a sketch it doesn't attempt to be definitive and i think it's the better it's the better for that so that was the 151, 151th, um, the, I need to get some sleep, obviously, the 151st episode of uh, Reverse Swept Radio. We will be back in a few weeks' time when we will be talking about, well, I have no idea what we'll be talking about, but it'll be, uh, it'll be cricket. Cricket. <laughs>